Welcome back to the Epics Podcast. I started this podcast because I believe that the foundation of hate and discrimination in our world comes from a lack of understanding of those who are different from ourselves. We plan to combat that by hearing everyone's stories so that we may better understand them and be a part of creating real positive change. I absolutely adore my guest this week. Her name is Chelsea Elliott, and she is the founder and CEO of Somocom Lab and the creator of the EQ Kids Group, the social emotional card game for kids. Using her childhood mental health challenges, her company helps adults create emotionally healthy and safe environments for kids while building the kids' confidence, resilience, and communication skills through emotional wellness. I hope that everyone can follow our conversation because when you get two passionate people with ADHD on the same Zoom call, almost anything can happen. I recently shared some of my story with ADHD on an episode of the podcast, so be sure to check that out if you haven't already. It'll give you some really good perspective to much of the conversation that Chelsea and I had today. So let's go ahead and roll the interview before I go off on any more tangents. Here is Chelsea's epic story. Hello, Chelsea. How are you today? Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Can you uh, introduce yourself for us as well as describe what you look like and where you are for those of us who can't see you on the podcast? So my name is Chelsea Elliott. I am a macro social worker, so I'm not a practicing clinician but um, I do have a social work background and I love everything about kids, all of their craziness, all of their wildness, all of their love. And my goal and mission in life is to help other adults find that love in kids as well and to help support them to feel more confident and resilient and to build up their communication skills. So that's my purpose. I'm a mom of two, a wife of going on nine years now. Um, my kids are two and six, two little girls. I love creating things and helping people find purpose and passion and relaxation and self-care. Like that's my jam. I struggle with mental health challenges that have plagued me my whole life, but now I use them for the betterment of other people. So that's just a little bit about me. Oh, and I have locks in my hair. I am light brown complected <laughs> have a big smile i wear big hoop earrings let's get into your story a little bit where did you grow up so i was born in los angeles california and we had a really interesting and magical life out there and then when i was nine my grandfather got sick in ohio and he wasn't expected to make it at all. He had an aortic tear and they were like, people don't usually survive this procedure. And if they do, they don't live very long. But he lived for 21 years. He was super awesome. But we ended up moving to Ohio to take care of him. And my father stayed back in California. And we always thought we would go back. We were always told we'd go back. And then like so much life happened and so many things happened around us. And I have three sisters. Um, I'm number two of four. And we all handled it so differently. But for me, it was very, very, very challenging because I was so out of control of everything mm. that I just started taking on whatever I could to help appease the adults around me or to make life easier for other people. But that hurt me mentally very, very badly. So I ended up with eating disorders and depression, anxiety, self-harming behaviors. I struggled with suicidal ideation for 15 years, but nobody knew what to do with me when I was a kid. Like at home, it was like, okay, you know, we we have a goal to achieve. We're working towards this and y'all just need to get in line and 
follow suit. Um, at school, it was like, you're just seeking attention. You're getting on our nerves, you know, get yourself together. And nobody ever said, are you okay? I know that this stuff sucks. I know that this is impacting you. I know that you miss your father. I know you miss having your family intact. I know that you came from sunny California, going to the beach every weekend to being in Ohio and getting frostbite because snow is cold. So it was a huge culture shock and just a huge challenge that people didn't know what to do with. So like I said, my mental health suffered big time from that. And it took a very long time for me to really get it together. I was finally diagnosed with all the things when I went to college. And I was like, oh, that would have been helpful to know when I was in high school. You know, I wouldn't have suffered so much. But once I figured it out, I used it to my benefit. I used it for other people's benefit. So finding out I had ADHD, it was ADD at the time. But finding out that I had that, I was, um, I started working in the disability services office, taking notes for other students that had ADD. Because I was like, well, you know, I know how to manage this now that I know what I have. And so I wanted to help support other people. I got on medication for my anxiety, which was magical and amazing and changed my outlook on life completely. And I was on that for seven years. And then when I found out, because I didn't know I could have kids. So when I found out I was pregnant with my oldest daughter, my very first thought was, I don't want her to have my mental health problems. So I stopped taking my medication. I really worked. I do not recommend that, but I did it. Uh, <laughs> withdrawal was really bad, but it worked for me in a sense. And I was really able to take a deeper dive into what was causing those issues and resolving that from the inside out. And so, yeah, here I am today trying to save the world save our babies. And I really resonate with your story a lot already, just because I too have ADHD, ADD at the time of, of my diagnosis. And I wasn't diagnosed until I was 20. Mm -hmm. So I also had to live with it. And I've gone off my medication. I also don't recommend that. It is interesting to be diagnosed, particularly, particularly with ADHD is the one I can most relate to, obviously. But to be diagnosed in college it was a really interesting time for me to be diagnosed with it because I got diagnosed ultimately because I was failing college. Oh. And I stopped, I had stopped going to classes and it was, it was the anxiety got to me. And so my coping mechanism was to just stop going. And I remember whenever I would get stressed, I wouldn't go. And then I would try to like plan it out, right? Like, okay, well, if I go the day before, the, the class before the test, then I'll get the review day. And that, and then I can like make it up, whatever. And I remember I kept doing it, I kept doing that. And one day I went into, it was a accounting class and I went in and it was not the day before the test. It was the day after the test. I had missed it. Oh. And I, I could not tell you a word of what the teacher said the entire rest of the time. I had, I was too panicked to go talk to her, to say anything. I just spent the entire time I would do, you know, like you, you have their syllabus and they'll say how much everything's worth. I spent the entire time doing math on, okay, that's a zero. What do I need to get on everything else to pass the class? And it was like, I got to get 98s on everything, oh, wow. which is like, that's probably not going to happen. And so it was this really dejected feeling. And after the class, I was like, okay, I should go talk to her. But I, I, I didn't because I was, the anxiety was just paralyzing for me. And the shame of having to go, hi, I missed the test, but I'm still here. What do I do? And eventually I ended up going to her after the next class. Um, and looking back, I'm actually kind of surprised that I went 
the class after that instead of just stopping going entirely. And she said, oh, I've been waiting to see you. You can retake the test. Wow. And I passed that class. And that was, for me, the first moment of, I need to do something different. Did you have a, do you ever, do you remember having a moment like that that led to your diagnosis? Obviously, you were kind of aware of, you know, some mental health in your day-to-day life. But is there a moment that led to to that part of it? Oh, man. I know I was struggling a lot. And it's interesting because for me, I wasn't doing so well in high school. But later I realized it was because our grading scale was so bad. So I thought I was a bad student. I thought I was a super C student. That's what I always called myself. C's and D's, like, that was my norm. If I got a B, A, finally. But I wasn't a great student. And my guidance counselor, when I got accepted to college, was like, make sure you got accepted to the main campus because I don't know. And I was like, oh, mm. probably not. All right, whatever. But I did. And when I got to college, I was on the dean's list the entire time. We were on quarters that time, you know, 10 weeks. And it was intense. <laughs> but I took, you know, maybe 18 credits every quarter, worked a full-time job or two jobs at a time. And I was on the dean's list except for two sem- two quarters. Two quarters. I remember the classes and everything. Like, it was it was interesting. And so I wasn't doing poorly, but I was like, okay, why do I still feel so down on myself? Why am I so hard on myself? Why do I still feel so depressed and so anxious? And why am I so sad? And those types of things. I don't remember what made me want to look into the ADD, but for my depression and anxiety, that was like life-changing to get that result and to finally know like, okay, there is some help for this. And I'm back on that medication that I was taking at that time because the pandemic was a lot. And so yeah. I got back on it December 2021 after having my second daughter. And I you know, waited as long as I could. And I was like, all right, I need to, I need to do this for myself. And mm-hmm. I have no shame in that. There is no shame in being medicated. But you got to do the work, too. You know, so I'm still in therapy, still doing the work, still taking care of myself. But the medication is just it's life changing. But yeah, there there were a lot of things that led up to me needing these diagnoses. And I'm really glad that I did that for myself. Oh, and for me, it sounds like this might have been so hard for you. But for me, I didn't go for an ADHD diagnosis. I went because I was depressed. And my therapist had referred me to my psychiatrist, who then was like, hey, I think you might have this. And I, and for, and I was, I remember feeling so relieved by my diagnosis because I, w- I was at the point of like, I have no idea what's wrong with me. And this is something I don't know. I, I I knew even less than that I do now about ADD, ADHD, but it was like, okay, there's something I can do to fix myself. Cause that's for me, that's my biggest problem with having ADHD is I feel like it's so misunderstood, even by the people who have it, that we just don't understand why we are the way we are. And so why would someone else, you know, have sympathy for that? And so that I had this huge amount of relief. And I think there's there's obviously still stigmas around a lot of these um, different things in different ways, but it's getting better, in my opinion. But we still think of, it's interesting, I think we, we put mental health in these different sorts of boxes. And I don't know if you agree with this or not, but like, for example, ADHD, we think of as affecting kids. Usually boys, I think, is the, the stereotype, right? Yeah. and not adults. So you and me wouldn't fall into the 
the classic ADHD category, but then all other mental health seems to be for adults and not, not affecting kids. Yeah. Right. And now you are telling us your story about having mental health struggles as a child and being diagnosed with ADHD. So you break all of those norms. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how that's affected your journey. Cause like you, you were talking about how you didn't feel seen, right? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people that that's a really interesting perspective though. Like there are stigmas like, okay, if you're a kid with this, you know, pretty normal, pretty typical, but if you're an adult with it now, nah, you just need to get yourself together. And no, kids are resilient. They don't get depressed. Like, what is that? They're just crying all the time. They're just annoying. But no, kids, we all have a brain. And that brain, as it continues to grow and change, and a lot of our childhood experiences, if you have a lot of what are called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, that literally changes the development of your brain, the physical aspects of your brain. And so as kids get older and they grow up and become adults, they're still human. They're still people. And so that brain is still the same brain, you know, and it's still being impacted if those things aren't being worked on. For me, I love my labels. And you said something that I think a lot of people think, oh, I have this diagnosis and I need to be fixed. But if you can see it as what it is, which is a superpower, you can learn how to use it in a lot of different ways, a lot of very powerful ways. You have a podcast. I know that your ADHD helps you with your podcast. I have created a lot of things in such a short amount of time that I, it still blows my mind that all of this has happened. But it's literally just because my ADHD allows me to do multiple things at one time. And instead of me thinking, Oh my gosh, my brain is so broken, which I used to think I used to pray, God, why did you give me a broken brain? I now am using every single piece of that, every piece of my brain to do the things that I love to do and to really and truly live in my purpose and my calling. So instead of seeing it as something that really needs to be fixed, yeah, I have a ton of notebooks and planners and, you know, digital remind. Oh my gosh, the number of reminders that I have on my phone is insane. But that doesn't mean that I need to be fixed. It's just a way for me to help myself to maximize my superpowers. And even having mental illness, having my depression and anxiety, knowing so much about myself now after having these labels and understanding there's a name for it, which means that there are cures for it, which means that there are solutions, not cures, but solutions right. for it, helps me to know, okay, I'm in this space right now. And one thing, I'm going to give a tip because I'm bouncing all over the place right now, which is totally fine. One thing that I do when I am in a depressed state, which I haven't felt in a really long time, which is like, oh, it's so amazing. But when I get there, I sit with it. Mm. Any feeling that I have, any emotion that I have, I've learned to sit with it because the harder you fight against it, the harder it's going to push back. And because it's a mental thing, it's going to push very hard. So if I learn, so what I do is I visualize myself on a park bench I'm I'm a very visual person, although I can't really draw or anything, but I visualize myself on a park bench. There's a pond in front of me and a big tall tree behind me. And I am literally sitting next to my depression. And I look at her and she looks at me and I said, okay, we're here together. Hello. <laughs> and I sit with it because I know that if I, if I beat myself up, if I say, oh my gosh, I shouldn't be feeling this way, she's going to get bigger. And she's going to continue to cloud my judgment and my thoughts about myself and life and where I am and everything that I'm trying to do. So I just sit with it. 
and I wait for her to turn her head and then I knock her out. And I start doing all the things that people tell you you should do when you get depressed. You know, I start exercising more or I start trying to eat a little bit better or I try to get a nap in. But none of those things matter. All the, the tips and advice, none of that matters because it's like thinking with a different brain. Mm. And so once you learn to sit with those feelings and understand these labels exist for a reason, there is a diagnosis for this, which means there is a solution to this. You can work through it. But there are a lot of people that get so defeated and they feel like there's no other solution. And that's how I felt for so long, struggling with wanting to die for 15 years. Every day as, as normal as a thought of, oh, what am I going to eat for lunch today? Oh, you messed that up. You should kill yourself. Like as normal of a thought as anything else. That's how I, I operated for so long. And to not be in that space anymore, to know that there is hope and to share that with other people. Oh. It's just such a huge relief for me because I never thought I would get to that space. So to answer your question in a very, very long way, <laughs> having the labels has been very helpful. Very, very helpful. I love how you mentioned your, you, you love your labels because, you know, I, I think I mentioned briefly when I, when I was diagnosed, I thought of it as great. Now I know what's wrong with me. I can fix it. Mm -hmm. Since then, I haven't fixed myself. Spoiler alert. But I've learned to love my label as well. And it's been a process, obviously. Um, but I think that was a big moment for me of, of I don't, and I can't think of when or how necessarily it happened, but there's a point where it, it, it changes from your diagnosis to just a part of who you are. And to me now, ADHD is not my illness. It is a part of who I am. It's a part, it's just a part of my personality, a part of my, my making. It's just in my brain. And that was a really helpful thing to me because then you do get to lean into, okay, well, how does this make me who I am in a positive way? Or like you're saying, your superpowers. Can you tell me a little bit about, I want to know more of your superpowers because this is one thing I've learned about people with ADHD. We all can do different things differently. So can you tell me a little bit about what are some things that you attribute to your ADHD that really make you who you are? And can you also then maybe tell me what are some things you have to do to, on a day-to-day -day basis to kind of compensate for ADHD? Uh, yeah, so I'll give you one example. Well, a few examples. I didn't really start to see it as a superpower until I think I had my second daughter. And I was just like, all right, girl, you are who you are. Let's work with this. Let's work with what you got. And I saw a TikTok from this conference that happened years ago by this doctor who talks about ADHD in terms of executive functioning. And I hadn't really heard that before. And that just like flipped a switch for me. It was, it was, I don't know, that was just the most life-changing, like, oh my gosh, there, you know, there's even a section of the brain that I could attribute to, like, that I could focus on. But after... I'll say it was March of 2020. I had signed up for a class at Cornell in October of 2020. My daughter was due in September. And I was like, it wasn't a class, it was a program. And I was like, I'm going to be on maternity leave, but I'm not probably going to be bored. Like, we can't have people in the house because of COVID. So, you know, I'm just going to sign up for it and we'll see how I feel. And, you know, I had my daughter in September. By October, I was like, all right, girl, you're going to go ahead and do it. You're just going to do it. And 
if you can't finish it, then fine. But let's just see how it goes. And being able to multitask and have different things to do, that's where I thrive. So having a lot of different projects at one time, for some reason, helps me organize way better than just having one thing to focus on at a time. Because then I'm bouncing off the walls and like, there's too much space in my brain and I need to fill this up in order to structure it. I created a card game right after that was over. Like I I got an idea in my head and I hyper focus, focus on it or hyper fixate on it. And I got it done in like less than a month. And I created a company that's been really amazing and successful and is now my full-time thing all within about five months. And I attribute my ADHD to all of that. Like my ability, I was working full-time at that time as well. Having two kids, we're all, you know, my husband and I are working um, from home full-time with these two little tiny babies. And I'm on one computer, on another computer, got a headset on in a meeting, watching the kids, you know, got to record my daughter's first everything. (laughs) My oldest got to teach her a lot. She taught her how to walk and all this. And it was just so cool to see, but I was able to be a part of everything at one time. And it was very stressful and very difficult, but it was life at the time. And I worked with what I had. So that was, um, I do attribute that to my ADHD and the success of the things that have happened so far. Oh, and in the midst of all that, I was helping people publish children's books. So just doing a lot at once sounds super crazy when I say it all out loud, but it's who I am. So whatever. Things that I do to help myself, uh, because again, I don't think that we need to be fixed. We're just not like neurotypical. And so typical society says you need to do things this way. And so we have to either conform to that or isolate ourselves and feel ostracized and feel like there's something wrong with us. But instead, I use a ton of reminders uh, I write things down everywhere I possibly can. <laughs> and if I really have something important, I tell my husband immediately. Mm-hmm. I say, hey, babe, we need to get such and such from the store. I'm letting you know because I know that you'll remember before I do. And every single time it works out. Every single time. Me even just saying it out loud helps me to remember. I have my kids remind me of stuff, at least my my six-year-old. I have her remind me of things. But just getting those reminders is really helpful because as I'm sure you know, you can do two things at the same time, but you really only remember one of them. Mm. And so like, did I put the garage door down while I was looking at my phone to check my GPS to make sure that I was, you know, while I was backing out, your brain is just constantly going. And so we have like a garage door thing. So I can just look real quick and say, oh, yep, the garage door was closed. Okay, good. I don't have to go back home, you know, after being halfway to my destination to make sure. Um, So little things like that, but just implementing like making life easier by using my um, digital tools and resources has helped tenfold, tenfold. And then one thing that I've really enjoyed learning about myself is I need to work standing up. Mm. So I bought a standing desk that is on top of my desk. And when I'm standing up to work, I can just move my chair out the way. I can walk away when I need to come right back to it instead of me sitting down and getting adjusted again and I could just walk right back to it. And that has been something like literally in the last week that I've noticed about myself and it has been so helpful. So just kind of little things like that that might sound goofy or really simple to somebody that can be life-changing with your productivity and just feeling like you can get things done. None of that sounded goofy to me. I was (laughs) mentally checking off all the things that I do that you just listed. My standing desk is over here under the bed because I don't use it anymore. But at one point I did. 
I'm, I always tell myself I should go back and start using it again. But as I developed my podcast and got more stuff, it made it harder. My, my wife used to always make fun of me because I, I have reminders for everything. I will do, I'll do what you, I'll do what you do is, and I'll tell her, Hey, uh, remember to do this. And usually what I'm, I'm telling her not so that she'll remember for me, but because telling her helps me remember. Yeah. And I remember I, I was doing that for so long before I told her that's what she was like, oh my gosh, that was so annoying because I had no idea what you were doing. And now she's just like, okay. And just kind of like, I mean, and then she still remembers because her memory is amazing. But yeah. yeah, so many of that, so much of that is so relatable to me. I would like to, I would like to talk about a lot of things at once. And which only you and me would be able to do. Right. <laughs> but let's go, let's go back a little bit. Let's talk a little bit more about your childhood with mental health, ADHD. Can you tell me a little bit about how now looking back, kind of knowing the full spectrum of, of what was impacting you and how you now have kind of you know, appropriately comp compensated your life and understand yourself better. Looking back at your childhood, is there anything that stands out to you as like, this was the most impactful that no one knew, even me? Yeah, th that's actually a really interesting question. Um, in last month, I did a training um, for an organization that bought my card decks. And I did not realize that I was still um, struggling with something from my childhood and I cried in the training and I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm so glad I have therapy on Thursday because I still have to work through this. So that's that's a really interesting question. Um, it was uh, the way that I took responsibility. So I always tell people, if you don't talk to your kids about the things that are happening around them, they are going to, one, come up with their own scenarios about this and to find a way to blame themselves every time every time and so you know thinking oh kids are resilient or they didn't see it or no this won't impact them that much because they don't know anything they do every time mm -hmm. they do um and so when my dad he and i like i tried to stay in touch with him as much as possible at the time long distance wasn't free apparently so i remember getting calling cards in the mail that he would send to me to call him um, we would email back and forth, but he wouldn't respond for like a month at a time or three months at a time. He'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. I was sick. I was in the hospital. And I'm like, wait, what? But I'm a child. And then he passed away when I was a junior in high school. And I felt like it was my fault because I should have taken care of him. I should have found him a job as a child. I should have found him a job. I should have brought him to Ohio in some way and, and gotten him settled. Why? Why did I feel the need to do that? Why did I feel like I was the one responsible for that? But I was told instead to get over it. We were told not to cry at the funeral. And our feelings were pushed to the side in this situation because we had a step parent already. And, you know, that was the person taking care of us. And our dad was a deadbeat, but I didn't realize that until I got much older. And so that situation still impacts the way that I perceive sickness in families because he was very ill, but didn't tell anybody until it was like way late. You know, communication with families and with kids, it impacts so much more than I realized until last month when I was talking to this group of directors at these centers and was like, oh, wow, because they were sharing stories about the things that their kids are seeing and going through. And I was like, this is why you have to talk to these kids. Like, we cannot keep ignoring this stuff. 
And it impacts so much more of who I am and my life than I ever realized, ever realized. Um, so yeah, I'm really intentional with how I talk to my kids now about things that happen and even bringing it up a week later because they're still thinking about it and they still have their own thoughts about it. And I'm like, nope, let's not create fake narratives. Let's talk about the real. Um, age appropriate, of course, but making sure that they are not in the habit of this was my fault, this was my problem, and I should have done more when they're a child. So I hope that answered your question. No, absolutely. And you've already started answering the next question I was planning on asking. Because I, as, as a parent with ADHD, my wife also has ADHD. So we're all over the place as a group. Yes, I know that for us, we are constantly looking for it in our kids. Because mm. we have obviously a you know, suspicion um, that, yeah, we both have it. So like, clearly it's hereditary. I have no idea if that is. You probably do have more idea than I do. But I think my mom has it. She won't admit it, of course. But <laughs> I'm like, oh, mommy, I'm so much like you. And I was diagnosed. So I'm pretty sure. Oh, this that's one of our toxic traits as a, as a couple. We we privately will diagnose other people without telling them or anyone else, obviously. But no, but uh, so so it informs a lot of how I parent. And. I'm constantly looking for it, not because I expect it necessarily, but because if my children do have ADHD specifically or whatever else, I want to be aware of that as soon as I can because I didn't know about it until I was an adult. My parents didn't know about it until I was an adult because I wasn't hyperactive. And that was for me, that was my big piece of not being able to know about it until later because ADHD is the hyperactive, the AD. So that's why they diagnosed me originally with ADD because I wasn't right. hyperactive. And now we don't say ADD at all. Right. And so it, it really <laughs> informs how, how I parent because I'm always, I'm always looking at it from that different lens and trying to make sure that they're understood and they being parented the way they need to. And I've never parented before, so this is my first time. But can you tell me a little bit about how that experience is for you? How does... How does your mental health journey impact how you're, how you're parenting your kid? So I practice conscious parenting, you know, conscious and gentle parenting. And with that, we have to remove, we have to remove ourselves from our kids. And so it's really hard. And there is a very fine line between like, I want to be aware and I'm parenting completely out of fear because I don't want this to happen to my child. Um, but letting them be their own person. There are a lot of very age appropriate behaviors that look like adult ADHD. Right. <laughs> but they're child behaviors. Kids are going to jump off things. Like that's just what they do. They're going to talk really fast and stumble over their words. They're going to forget. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's what being a kid is all about. Um, so you're going to have to repeat yourself with them. But, you know, I try. My biggest fear is my daughter, my oldest daughter having depression mm. because I had it at such a young age. and so. I try not to put, you know, raise her in my fear while also still being aware of, you know, the fact that this could come up for her at some point. So we talk a lot and we've been talking since she was two. Like she would play with her dolls and, you know, how they reenact stuff. Anytime you want to get to know your child for real, role play with them. And you will see like what they pick up from you, what they've picked up from school, what they really think about life and reality. You will see. And so she'll play with her dolls and be like, Oh, you're in trouble. We need to have a conversation, you know, because that's what that's what we did. We had conversations all the time. 
Um, and we still do. And so getting to know her brain and her perspective on things and when she's really upset or crying for what I think might be no reason, kids always have a reason. And so getting to understand her as her own person and not think, oh, she's going to have my brain. So I need to make sure at every moment that she's not experiencing any kind of sadness because I don't want her to get depressed and I don't want her to feel anxious. No, it's okay for her to feel these things. It's okay for her to go through her emotional experiences. I just need her to not, you know, misbehave in a sense, like not kick and throw and do things that are unsafe and unhealthy for herself and others. But to have those feelings is really important. So removing yourself from your your from parenting your child is so important. Taking your fears, your experiences and all that away from this person who is already fully whole and in themselves instead of saying, oh, you're so much like me that I know you're going to have these same issues and challenges that I had. No, you are your own person and you're going to grow up to be that. And I'm just here to foster that for you, you know, help you come into yourself a little more and a little more. But that's that's how I parent. And that's what I see as being really effective. I have not heard one person that raised children with the conscious and gentle parenting models that said, dang, I really regret that they became a serial killer. Nobody. Nobody. I really regret that they really did walk all over me. Not a single person. Has That's that. a brand advertisement because I really don't want my kids to be serial killers. I mean, try it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really interesting to me, though, because, you know, again, you're speaking right to a lot of things that I'm thinking all the time, which is I don't want to project this onto them. and Live in You said I think the way you said that was live in my fear of my daughter having depression. And I want I want to ask you a little bit more about that, because obviously we don't want to project it onto them and live our lives like they're going to have that. I don't want to live my life like my kid has ADHD unnecessarily. But for me, it's about in, in my in my circumstance, I'm trying to think, well, I think my kid does have ADHD. And what does that mean for him, for us? I don't want him to be medicated. He's five years old. So what do we need to do? How do we need to think of things differently? And a big part of that for me is like, okay, what would I have needed when I was a kid? And so for you and your daughter, how do you, how do you find that balance of, I'm not, I don't want to project this onto you and I don't want to live in that fear, but also how do I be aware of if you are feeling depressed, how do I address that? How do I identify that? Because for someone like you, you went through your childhood without that being addressed. And so how do you find that balance? And like, what kind of things are, do you rationally look for as an indicator? Yeah, you know, parenting is, um, it's nothing but trial and error. And becoming a parent was one of the absolute scariest things for me because I knew that there was going to be failure. And I hated failure because I was a perfectionist. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to fail every day. I don't want this. I don't want this. But once once you have them and you see them as a person and, and who they are, you realize that failure is just a normal part of being a human. And so getting to know your child, you're, you're going to make mistakes, but getting to know them and see like the baseline for their personality You'll understand when you see something that's like, oh, this might be a little, this might be a little, it might be time to talk to somebody. Getting a second opinion. So I always tell people, please build up your village. 
My mom did a great job of that when we were growing up. We still have the same people. If she has any, if she were to have a party tomorrow, we would have those same people that were there for all of our graduations when we were growing up. Everything, you know, sending cars with money in it, every single thing, it would be the same people. And I always say, get your village. Make sure that you trust your doctor. Make sure that you have, you know, a therapist that you can trust. My husband and I have, um, like you said, you and your wife have ADHD. My mm-hmm. husband and I both have um, opposing anxieties. So mm-hmm. his projects as like anger and frustration, not in a, a heavy way, but now I understand it so much better. So it's like, oh, he looks like he's mad about this, but he's really just anxious. So let me help him understand it. And mine is more fear-based. Mm-hmm. Um, but we share a therapist. So if we needed to go to her for couples, we could do that too. But we have her individually and it has been life-changing. And if I have any concerns about my daughter, I can let her know and we can work through some solutions for me to help to understand myself in that situation and understand how to support her. And so having, you know, trusted people, I know I can go to her pediatrician and say, hey, I think, you know, there might be something going on. Could we come in for an assessment or just a conversation? I could do that. And I would trust her, her opinion on that. So making sure that you have trusted people. Um, learning how to trust yourself and trust your gut. That's not something that we were raised to do because we were always told that we were wrong with how we were feeling. And so as we've become adults, it's like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't know if I'm right. I don't know if I, you know, if this is going to be the right decision. So you feel like you have to talk to everybody else around you before you can make a decision. And you don't actually have to do that. We all have an instinct within us in our heads and our stomachs that say, yes, you should look further into this or no, that that's typical behavior, you know, developmentally appropriate. Um, So just learning how to trust your gut and then having an understanding of child development. There are times when kids are just going to cry. There are times when kids are going to be bouncing off the walls, you know, knowing if your child needs to get more sleep. So adjusting their sleep patterns, uh, adjusting their foods. I know that like Mm. red food dye can have an impact on behavior. I believe yellow as well. So we don't buy foods that have dyes in them, which is difficult for some people, but it's definitely doable. You know, just making adjustments to things in the environment, reducing screen time because screens make kids kind of crazy. My kids watch TV all day because that's what we do. But Mm -hmm. sometimes I'll just have it off. And I'm like, let's, yeah, y'all are going to fight a little bit more, but that's okay. You know, (laughs) it's fine. Um, But just just knowing your child at baseline and when you see a change in their behavior, looking for changes in their environment to see if that could be a cause. If it's not going the next step to talk to a doctor, If the doctor refers them to somebody and you trust your doctor, take that referral. If you need to talk to your therapist and see if, you know, they know a child therapist for them to just get an assessment or an evaluation, there's no harm in that. I always say to get the intervention early. Like I said, I love labels. I don't think that they're used appropriately most of the time. Um, But I absolutely love labels because you can do something with that. The more you know, the more you can work with. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with having your child in speech therapy. There's nothing wrong with having an IEP. If they get that support early, they'll know how to manage their lives later. The more support they get early on, the better they will be at handling life later. And so I think we're a product of that. Like, you don't get the help now, you're going to get it later, and it's going to impact so much of who you are. So I think that those are the easiest, most practical ways to, you know, to walk that line. Because it is a very fine line. Like, You don't want to coddle your kid too much because you think that they're going to get depressed. But you also, you don't want to put that out in the world. Like my child is depressed. My child is like, you don't want to keep saying that because that leads to, I believe affirmations are real. And of all the 
amazing things you just said. The thing that I know I need to hear and I think any other parent needs to hear again is this is really hard, right? And I, I love that you said parenting is just trial and error. That's why we have second kids, right? Because we got to try again. Yeah. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm a first kid, so I, I obviously wasn't done right the first time. Oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> just side note, I had a conversation with my daughter in the car this morning. I was like, yeah. I am sorry. Like, you're number one and we don't know what we're doing. So sure. that, had that in the car this morning. Yeah. And as true as that is, even like for us as well, I don't know if that makes me a better or worse parent for the second kid. So it is what it is either way. All and they just they just get us as we are. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, uh, we're all just figuring it out. It's all trial and error every single day. And in, and that is the hardest thing about parenting is and, and about, you know, as a just even using that as kind of the microcosm for life is like you said, failure happens every day and learning to not be crushed by that something that you know i still struggle with you know of course and we all can afford to hear over and over again because it is a part of everyday life but i want to to talk a little bit more about what you're doing now so so obviously we've heard so much about your your story struggling with mental health as a child and you've now created socom socom lab somocom I asked you beforehand how to say it. Okay. I still messed it up. And so tell me a little bit about that and EQ Kids Crew, the card game you created. Yeah, so, um, oh, goodness. Yeah, the timeline is so foggy because, you know, ADHD, you just you have the timeline mm -hmm. of a dog. Like, you just don't know what time it is. Um, <laughs> I believe it was in 2020 when I wrote my first children's book. And it... It's a really cool book. I, I mean, I'm just going to say that. Not as the author, but like, it's just a really cool book. And it's called Natalie the Monster Slayer. It's about um, addressing fear and like facing your fear while being brave. So being courageous. Um, and it takes kids through this journey that my daughter Natalie goes through, you know, hearing a sound at home and it wakes her up and she, you know, goes through the fight, flight, freeze, fawn um, uh, stuff. And she's, you know, you know what is this sound and should I get up and do something should I just stand in my covers should I hide like what am I supposed to do and she decides to fight and she's standing you know at her door she's like shaking she's giving herself a mantra to get herself together and she finds out what the sounds are that are scaring her but the way that it was written like it takes kids through 13 emotions 13 or 14 different emotions that they can go through in that situation um, what it physically feels like to feel those things, what it looks like, you know, what might be going through your head, that kind of stuff. And so I wrote that, did my program at Cornell, wrote another book. And then I got this idea to make a card game to go with the books. And then I was like, oh, I can just make a series. And the card deck was so crystal clear in my head that I thought it was something that was already made. So I was on Amazon, like, where did I see this? Why is this so clear for me? And I couldn't sleep at nights. And I was like, okay, let me just get this out because I, I can't stop thinking about it. And so that's where my ADHD came in. I got it out of my head in like a week at a prototype. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. And somebody was like, oh, you're going to make a boy version of this because it was just supposed to be about Natalie. And I was like, I am not doing that. I'm not going to make a different <laughs> version of this game for every child. I would love to, but no. So I made them a crew because kids love to feel included, you know, yeah. in a group. And so I made them a, a really diverse set of characters who are teaching kids about 
there's seven core emotions and the, the deeper feelings in those. And that card game, that card deck turned into the company. And I don't like, it was so weird and so quick how it all happened. And it was like one step at a time. And before I knew it, I was like, okay, I have a business and I have workshops already. I have books, I have card games, I have bundles, like, like all these things happen. And it, it's just been such an amazing journey to see so many parents and educators saying, finally, I have this resource where my kids can see themselves in this. Kids that don't look like them can learn compassion for other children, you know, that don't look like themselves. Um, my kids, you know, they're beautiful brown babies. They never see themselves in these type of resources. So it was really cool for my daughter to actually be one of the characters and her sister to be so excited to see her sister in there, you know? And she talks, she has her own pitch when she sees me. If she was here right now, she'd be like, hi, I'm Natalie. I, you know, I'm Natalie the Monster Slayer. I'm in the EQ Kids crew. Do you have your game? And that's her little pitch whenever, whenever she sees me in a meeting. So it's just really cool for them to be a part of the process. But it, it's just been one step at a time, one impact at a time, and seeing how far this can go that kept me going with this. And having these types of conversations where adults are like, okay, I know I struggled when I was younger and people didn't know what to do. I, you know, forgave them or not. They didn't know what to do, but now I do. And now I, I need, you know, I want to do something. I want to do something. And that has been like the most powerful and impactful part of doing all of this. Well, that's amazing though. And again, you're speaking right to me because I have ADHD, but I am also trying to make myself an entrepreneur. I am an entrepreneur. And so can you tell me a little bit about the, that journey of, you said you now do this full time. Yeah. What was what was it like having that start to slowly or quickly, in your case, maybe take over your life? Oh, boy. Um, yeah, that's a <laughs> that's it's a journey. Uh, I don't know how much time we have, but I have always. So like I said before, I'm using every single bit of my life, my childhood to my education. I went to school, Boston College for macro social work based on social innovation and leadership and all this stuff that I was like, I don't even know what a social worker is, let alone a macro social worker. Why am I here? And I would cry to my professors every day. Why am I here? What am I doing? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? And now I get to use my skills every day. And I loved my job. It was a wonderful, wonderful job. Um, I got to participate in, in a program through Goldman Sachs called Black in Business. And um, we had a business advisor and a business mentor. And the mentor was a small business owner. I did this in May 2022, sorry, May 2022. And the first thing she said was, I'm the type of person that gets you to quit your job. And my the way my brain works now, because I'm a Christian and my faith plays a gigantic role in my life, God always speaks to me in certain ways. I hear him. It's so interesting how I explain this, but I tell people all the time, I hear him the way that like Bumblebee from Transformers talks. So, you know, he talks through the yeah. radio. Like you hear his voice in, in different sounds, different voices, different things. That's how I hear God's voice. It's super weird, I know, but that's how I hear him. And so when she said that, I knew that that message was for me. And I, But I was like, oh, no, that means I'm going to be leaving my job. But I don't know how and I don't know. And I just started like freaking out in that moment because her just saying that like that. And I was like, oh, God, that was for me. My life was going to change at the end of this year and I don't want it to. But I know I have to do it because otherwise God's going to push me through it. And I don't want him to push me anymore. Done that way too many times. It's always been for my benefit, but the push hurts. And so 
I prayed on it and I said, okay, if these like three or four things can happen, I will do it. But I don't know when, I don't know how, but I'll do it. And again, this was May of last year. I had that program. I've been featured in a lot of different amazing, amazing places like Black Enterprise, the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Radio, um, Parents Magazine, the Today Show, like a lot of really amazing places that have shown me, you know what you're doing. Stop questioning yourself. You got this. You are an expert. You are, you know what you're doing. You have a whole master's degree in social work. You got this. So I had to stop questioning myself. And then one day I volunteered at my um, daughter's daycare to help with picture day. And it was like the most amazing thing ever. Oh, the running babies back and forth, getting them ready. They're falling asleep, you know, before their pictures were getting taken. It was just, it was everything. And the director kept saying to me, you know, we need help here. Like we really could use your help. We really need someone. And my brain kept saying, why is she out? Why does, why does she keep asking me this? Why does she keep saying this? And then I flipped it and said, why does this opportunity keep presenting itself to me? And that was another like life-changing question for me, life-changing statement. And I was like, all right, Lord, if this last thing lines up, I'm going to do it. And I got some business financing. I said, oh, crap, now I have to do it. And one day I was at a co-working space. And again, I hear him so clearly. And I felt somebody, it was like somebody was pushing my back. And I was doing like this while I was sitting there. And I said, call her. Call your boss right now and let her know you're done January 6th. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm too scared. And I did it. And I was trembling. My stomach was hurting. I was about to cry. Like, I was so scared. Because I was telling my boss, I'm going to leave my job. It was October. Again, 2022. I said, I'm, my last day is going to be January 6th. And she was really excited for me and kind of nervous herself. But that's where it was. And the very, I think it was either the next day or was that evening, the director of that daycare came to me and said, we need help right now. She was waiting in my daughter's room. So I thought something happened. And I was terrified. She was like, I need your help right now. I need help with these preschoolers. They have to get ready, you know, for the next level. And they're, they're nowhere near it because, of, you know, the pandemic really mm-hmm. stunted some social emotional development in kids. Not interacting with other people, not seeing faces for a long time, right. not understanding emotions. So many changes and unpredictable situations. Kids thrive on predictability. Even if they, they act like they hate their routine, they need the routine. And they weren't getting any of that. And so she, for her to do that, I was like, okay, because of my obedience, that presented itself right then and there. And I want to say it was a month later. So that prompted me to create a program. So I just created a program. Right after that, that moment. And she said, I would like for you to start January 9th. Mind you, my last day was a Friday the 6th. Ninth was a Monday. I said, okay, God, I hear you. I hear you crystal clear. So now I get to run a program that I created twice a week with this amazing center that is like, yeah, this is a pilot. That is totally fine. You can test it out on these kids. Totally fine. They are paying me for this program. And I get to do what I absolutely love and adore every day. So that is my journey with this business. This isn't my first business. Um, my first one was a hot mess because I did not listen to God at all. And I, as I think back on it, there are so many situations where I was like, wow, he was really trying to get me to go a different path with this. And I didn't listen. So this has been the most amazing journey for me. And now it's like every single bit of my life makes sense. Every piece of my life makes sense with what I'm doing now. So it's scary. It was a big leap. 
but it was necessary. And otherwise I would have been pushed out. I love that so much. Oh, that's just an amazing story. So speaking to those of us who, who maybe have a different story from you, who, who didn't have these struggles when we were kids and maybe some of us who don't have a mental health diagnosis or have a harder time kind of fully understanding the mental health journey that you're, that you've gone through speaking to, to us, what do you hope that we get from your story? Understanding that everybody is different and everybody has a story. If you haven't been diagnosed with a mental health issue or you, you know, you don't have any, that is wonderfully amazing. And I'm very happy for you. (laughs) I'm very, very happy for you. Um, But just knowing that there are people out here who are suffering and struggling, who haven't been diagnosed, but they for sure have something going on. I hope that people can see, you know, if somebody is really emotional or they might be scatterbrained and all over the place that they're trying their best. You know, you can only do so much. And it's it's hard for people who haven't gone through something to really have a deep understanding of it and to empathize with that person. It's It's like, why can't you get it together? Like in my brain, this makes total sense. But for you, you just need to get it together. And I think that it's, um, it's, it's just important to know that everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. And for the rest of us who, who do resonate with your story, like I've already said so many times that we may also be considering getting diagnosed or trying to figure that out, or we have been diagnosed and we still are figuring it out. What do you want to say to those people? Learn from your labels. Like, don't hide from them. Don't try to run away from them. Don't fight so hard against who you are. If you have to change jobs, do that. Don't live a miserable life because you feel like you have to conform all the time. There are places and spaces that are perfect for you. You just have to find them. And you have to really trust yourself and trust that you're on you're on the right path. I love... um Oprah says, like, there is no failure. It's just redirection. And so anytime something doesn't go my way, like I said, I'm very visual. So I picture, I don't really know how else to say this. You know how our veins, like, there's one straight one and then there's a bunch branching off. Yeah. So I picture my life that way. So, okay, there's one branch off. Oh, that one really worked. Oh, I went that way and that didn't work. So I need to go that way. So I just picture it as going different paths instead of seeing it as failure. And so we all have a right path per se. It can change over time. Like we're not stuck with one purpose, I don't think. But finding that space for yourself and making sure that you are happy in your life and you're not just living miserably to appease other people or because you feel like you have to, like you have to conform all the time. I think that's like the most important thing that I want people to know. There is hope for you. You can live a happy, whole, healthy and fulfilled life. And if you're not in that space, go find it. Is there. Well, Chesley, thank you so much for uh, joining me for this episode today. I could probably spend several more hours talking to you, but everyone else might not be able to follow the conversation. So we'll end it here for today. And I would love to have you back and talk with you some more about you know everything else. And uh, again, I just thank you so much for, for spending the time with me and being so open and vulnerable. 
If anyone would like to continue to follow Chelsea's story, I will have links to all of her socials, to her company, to her books, to her card games, all in whatever description of wherever you're listening to this right now. And thank you for coming on and being being so open and vulnerable with us and sharing your story. Thank you for having me, Alex. I feel like that's the only way to live. If, you know, one person could share their story and help other people have hope, then, you know, you've done your job. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Chelsea. If you believe in what Epix is doing and love the content that we're creating, I'd be so grateful if you supported us on Patreon so we can spend more and more time bringing you guests to share their epic stories with us. Thank you again, Chelsea, for coming on the podcast and sharing your story today. You are just amazing, and I learned so much from our conversation. Like I mentioned, links to follow Chelsea as well as buy any of her books or her card game will be in the description here wherever you're listening. Also remember that I'm selling books on my website as well that have been great resources for me on my social justice journey, as well as kids' books that we use with our kids. If you buy any of them through the links on my site, I get affiliate commission and you're supporting the author, a local bookstore, and the Epics podcast. That link, of course, is in the description as well. Be sure to let us know what you learned from this episode by reaching out on any social media at Epics Pod and make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss the next Epic story. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.